a Venusian phosphine scoop. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Cardiff University astronomer Jane Greaves has returned with more evidence for phosphine gas in the atmosphere of Earth's broiling sister planet. Jane and I will talk about the implications, including speculative models of how living organisms could be responsible. It's a delightful conversation with a delightful guest, and it ends with a challenge for the more artistically gifted among you. Equally delightful, Bruce Betts will pick up with a look at the current night sky, a random space fact, and a new space trivia contest, all as part of this week's What's Up. Have you heard last week's stinky comet feature? My conversation with three University of Bern scientists gets top billing in the August 12 edition of the Downlink, the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter. There's more comet commotion in this issue, including a pretty image of Swift-Tuttle, the body that is responsible for the just-finished Perseid meteor shower. The Artemis One mission is still headed toward its first launch opportunity on August 29th. I'll be there with my society colleagues, Chief Advocate Casey Dreyer and Editorial Director Ray Paletta. We're hoping to meet with other society members, and all of us are hoping to see that giant space launch system rocket lift off for the first time. Even as we look forward to Artemis One, NASA is preparing to send four astronauts on a similar moon-orbiting trip. Artemis Two might happen as soon as 2024. You can always find more at planetary.org slash downlink. The Venusian phosphine saga has a new chapter. It comes to us once again from Professor Jane Greaves, leader of an international interdisciplinary team of scientists. We first reported on their findings back in October of 2020. That announcement generated a lot of media interest and a lot of skepticism from other researchers. As you'll hear in this new conversation, Jane and her team have never stopped gathering data, and this data still points to the presence of phosphine gas. So, if it's really there, where is it coming from? Volcanoes on the surface? Living microbes that have adapted to a difficult life in the clouds? Or some other yet-to-be-discovered mechanism? These are some of the topics I covered with Jane a few days ago. Jane, welcome back to Planetary Radio. Uh, congratulations on delivering the Fred Cavley Lecture at the recent meeting of the American Astronomical Society. We're going to link to the video of your presentation that I highly recommend our listeners uh, take a look at. It is a wonderful background, really, about uh, all of Venus exploration, not just the work that you've been doing, but it is certainly that as well. And that's what we'll talk about today. Thanks for coming back to the show. Thanks very much for having me on the show again. It has been quite a ride, hasn't it? It certainly has. It's hard to believe that um, we published our results and, like, you know, conveyed them to everybody public in the world, like, nearly two years ago now. It was September 2020. And we covered that uh, media briefing, that press conference, and then you were on the show soon after. And then you came back on the show to talk about the commotion that had been caused. You know, I, I was tempted to call this episode the phosphine strikes back or, or revenge of the phosphine. 
but that that kind of implies, you know, we media people were always looking for controversy and and conflict. Of course, the opposition that was generated by legitimate scientists wasn't that exactly the way science is supposed to work. It was mostly, yeah. I mean, we put mostly. everything out there very publicly, so all our data were public, and all our like things on the computer that we process the data, so all our results were reproducible, which nobody's really um, queried that that those procedures we used didn't work. Um, but yeah, it is, you put it out there and people go, you know, that's not my favorite technique. And so we've been kind of wrestling with that. I think the thing that was a bit of a downer um, was people didn't get really get in touch with us and say, let's right. share expertise, which was what we really wanted. Um, people were putting out their things going, I can't find it. <laughs> and then we'd be looking through what they'd done and going like, you haven't shown us the details, but we think you've done the following. So it's been a little bit rough on the two of us who were doing the data processing. But um, yeah, it is very much the way science proceeds. I'm sorry to hear about that part of it. I mean, some of us tend to forget that scientists are merely human and uh, do things that other humans do periodically. But now, I mean, it's the, the work that you detailed in the Kavli lecture. You have new data, which we're going to get to in a moment. But I want to go back even further because I don't think I've asked you this before. What first got you thinking, hmm, I wonder if there could be phosphine in the Venusian atmosphere, and how would we go about finding it? What got that underway? Oh, it's kind of funny, because um, I was asked to do a kind of very early specification for what a far infrared space telescope might in the future be able to do for solar system science. And this was for a UK meeting, and the, that's kind of very niche for the UK. So they asked me, and I didn't know a huge lot about it, of course, this will be very exciting, particularly in the US, because NASA has plans for a far infrared space telescopes. So I really hope we get to do these things. You know, I was looking around thinking, what kind of things have been done before for the solar system in the far infrared, um, which is a heritage of things like the Infrared Space Observatory that the European Space Agency built a couple of decades ago. Um, so I looked through all this, because particularly the brief was to look at things you could do at spectra for detecting molecules. I found phosphine is a molecule I've been studied a lot. And then I had to look it up because I was like, never heard of it. Okay, it's pH3. That sounds quite a simple molecule. And then I did a little bit more looking it up. And uh, most of the stuff that came up was about how it's poisonous, um, but also how it's a gas that you find on Earth where you've got these bacteria in extreme situations and they don't use oxygen. So they get their energy in other ways. And for reasons we don't really understand, um, they pump out some phosphine gas. And in the back of my mind, there was solar system, you know, what's been done in the solar system? Where haven't we been so much? And I was thinking, oh, yeah, there's this old idea that Carl Sagan and some other people came up with that there could be life floating in the clouds of Venus where there's no oxygen. And kind of all these things fell into place. And I was like, well, you know, nobody's stopping us doing a search for phosphine on Venus. It's never been done. And I thought, oh, well, we'll have to wait 20 years for this space telescope or 30 years and I'll be super retired. And then I realized that you could actually do some of this with the radio telescopes we already have. There's one of these absorption wavelengths of phosphine that you can do with radio telescopes from facilities we already have on the ground. So that's what kicked it off. Uh, what a brilliant scientific inference or, or, or progression of thought there. That's exactly what I wanted to hear about. So that first work done with data that you got from the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope in, in Hawaii and the ALMA array, which I never fail to tell people that I, I got to visit once. There are in the Atacama Desert in, in Chile. 
that's what gave you this first tantalizing data. But now, a second round of observations from the JCMT, the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope. What's different about this second set of data from, from that instrument? Well, the JCMT have been great to us. Not only did they give us a bit of time in the first place, which other telescopes were like, please don't waste our time with this idea. But they very generously gave us a few hours to do it and gathered the data. Um, But then they went back without us even asking, in fact. So this was um, two years ago now, two summers ago. They had a new instrument on the telescope, which wasn't even being used by like regular astronomers. But they did a little bit of time because Venus had come back, swung back again and took us a few more um, spectra. And then we had all the excitement with the paper coming out and talking to people and great interactions with the public. And then the start of people going like, no, you must be wrong in the science community. And I didn't really (laughs) get to look at the new JCMT data for um, like almost a year, I think. And then I looked at it and we do see the phosphine um, absorption again, and it's pretty similar. So we have 2017 and 2020 data um, with the same telescope, but with different instruments and different kinds of tackling the the processing issues that come in there. Um, And we got the same results. So I'm very happy about that. The article by my colleague, Jason Davis, uh, who I think you spoke to a while back, we're going to link to his article as well. It includes this wonderful graphic of three different plots, all of which show this big dip and are from three different, well, two different telescopes, ALMA and the JCMT, but on the JCMT now, two completely different instruments. It looks like you have reason to have a bit more confidence here. I think we do. And in fact, I haven't told anyone yet this because I was doing it this morning (laughs) before speaking to you. Um, But we have a third set of data from the JCMT um, because on the back of what we had already, um, they're allowing us to do what's called a legacy survey, where we can use far, far more telescope time um, and collect a whole slew of data. And uh, my friend, uh, Dr. Dave Clements at Imperial College here in the UK is leading that. But the whole pile of data from February landed on my computer, which is a very slow computer. (laughs) And um, I finally teased out the third detection of phosphine from the JCMT um, just this morning. So in fact, your listeners are the first to know that because I haven't had time to email Dave yet. (laughs) That is fantastic. I'm sorry that it'll be a few days before this show goes out, but thank you for that scoop. (laughs) Um, You also addressed in your lecture the various arguments for and against how phosphine might be getting generated. Volcanoes, <laughs> I don't think it's heavy industry on the surface. And of course, this possibility of life floating around uh, up there. And uh, that reference that you made, maybe regret now to uh, you hope it's flying penguins, because, you know, I read, I, I actually looked at that paper Uh, by uh, completely unrelated researchers about phosphine created in the guts of Antarctic penguins. I'm guessing maybe I didn't get far enough into the paper by more anaerobic bacteria that are turning out those phosphine. I think that's true. I tried to read that penguin paper too. And as a whole branch of penguinology, I was not familiar (laughs) with as an astronomer. (laughs) But yeah, we we mentioned this because we all got kind of, you know, oh, the cute penguins in the pictures. They're gentoo penguins, I think, which are exceptionally cute. I think we must have mentioned this one too many times because people got confused by this idea, like, how do the penguins stay up in the clouds of Venus? And we didn't mean like literal (laughs) penguins. (laughs) 
Although, uh, you know, as I'd put in some email to you, let's hope that the Da Vinci Plus probe, when it descends, doesn't bean any uh, any fine penguins as it descends. <laughs> oh, and now I think you may have reached, it's one of my favorite slides in your lecture presentation. It's the one that was titled Microhabitats, and there's a question mark on the end of that. You know the one I'm talking about. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I hope I'm picturing the same slide as you, but <laughs> the idea is that, um, and this was my colleagues, Sarah Seeger, MIT, leading this particularly, um, that um, the droplets in the clouds of Venus, which we think are there, could be a natural habitat. So these things might be only a few millionths of a meter across, really, really tiny things, but like a tiny drop where you could fit in um, a few microbes because they're a bit smaller than that. In that case, they could make a kind of protective environment for themselves. So maybe um, these droplets won't all be the same. Some could have more water in them. They could reduce the um, sulfuric acid in the droplets by some kind of biological action um, and kind of preserve themselves. And then their, their little bubble bursts or they fall or something. Um, they could maybe go into some kind of spore stage and then get carried around by winds and turbulence and end up in a different droplet. Sarah's team have worked out a whole kind of life cycle um, there, you know, which is all put together on the basis of sensible ideas. But what we'd really need is some probe to go there and, and you know, see if um, those conditions actually work. I think you've answered the question, but I'll ask it anyway. How important is it that we go to Venus, physically go there and sniff this atmosphere directly? It's amazing, all the basic information we don't have. So, you know, we've decided phosphorus is important and phosphorus as a chemical element is really important for life and you and me and everyone. So it's in our DNA molecules. Wouldn't work without that, for example. We have no measure of any kind of the amount of phosphorus on the surface of Venus. And mm. we have one measure of in the atmosphere, essentially. Uh, actually, two measures now, two different spacecraft from the 1970s. You know, we just don't have the yeah. kind of wealth of information you could get with modern spacecraft. So, you know, ideally, I'd want to send a flotilla and observe the heck out of everything. But I think the race is on to go and look at some of these new questions that have come up with, like, what is really in the clouds? You know, are they completely dry? Um, you know, even things like how windy is it? You know, how stable could anything be? We know so little. So hopefully a slew of instruments is going um, and several space agencies now have declared an interest. So it's great to have new players in the game as well, all with different ideas of what kind of instrument you could send, ranging from um, something like the quickest shot you could do the next time Venus comes around, maybe one tiny instrument, a sort of palm-sized instrument, just to do one thing related to life in the clouds. That would be amazing. Up to, you know, the biggest space agencies like NASA and ESA, who would pack probably a dozen instruments to tell you all kinds of other things. Like, we don't know if there's lightning in the clouds of Venus, for sure, uh, as an example. Really hard to observe from the Earth. So, you mm -hmm. know, some kind of camera, radio sensor, and could answer all these questions at the moment. Are you or Sarah or other members of your team, are you, are you talking to members or are you talking to the teams for these other spacecraft like the two NASA probes that are expected to launch in 2028? 
Yeah, very much. Um, they're calling on different people of our team, depending on expertise, you know, to understand chemistry or modeling atmospheres and computers or whatever. The Da Vinci people have been particularly generous and just held a, a roundtable meeting, inviting people to put forward ideas because they have um, their instrument package is pretty much, you know, the design is finished, but they found a way to slot in kind of a fourth bit of wavelength to one of the yeah. um, instruments which is a laser spectrometer. So they were saying, like, get your bids in for what you'd like it to be. So <laughs> we went in as um, both team phosphine and team ammonia, both of which would be great biomarkers. So I was, you know, sneakily putting myself on both teams. And then there's some other really interesting molecules up for um, consideration as well that might tell us a whole lot about the volcanoes or looking for rare isotopes that would tell us more about the molecules and atoms that are left in the atmosphere, It'd give us a real clue to the past of Venus, because the lighter ones like fly away in um, this event that's thought to have got rid of the oceans and the water that may have been there. So you can um, calculate how much atmosphere was lost from these heavier and lighter isotopes, as I understand it. Um, and so we could get some idea if Venus had oceans. So this is all like thrilling science. So um, in a way, it doesn't matter which um, instrument they managed to put on as this fourth channel, or even if they can't do it, they already have super exciting plans. But yeah, Team Phosphine and um, Team Ammonia, which Dave is telling me is now called Team Phosmonia or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> We're hoping <laughs> they might pick one of our molecules. I go team Phosmonia, I suppose. I, so much to look forward to. Wouldn't it be just delicious if we discovered life above Venus before we found evidence of life or even past life on Mars? That would that would be quite something. That that would be quite crazy. I think what kind of hit me in the face was like I'm starting to think maybe there's life in all these environments because life is um, mm. is so tough. If you know, we turn around a few years and we're like, well, obviously on Venus and on Mars and inside Europa and Enceladus, you know, why wouldn't there be? It might be a situation like, you know, now we're going like, well, why wouldn't there be planets everywhere? Which seems so crazy if you look back now at a 30-year-old, maybe a child's textbook, going like, we will never know if there are planets around other stars. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you who's under 30 now, and they're like, how did they write that? That's so dumb. <laughs> so yeah, maybe the next textbooks will be going, how did they write? We will never know if there's life on other planets. I, I want to be around when the, the need to revise those current textbooks comes around. I got just one other question for you. It's another shot in the dark. Have you received any drawings of those phosphine belching penguins that live so happily in the, the high, cool Venusian clouds? No, sadly, I haven't. Though we did get a very odd message saying it had been a question in a Japanese quiz show. And so they phoned up rather confused to go, is the correct answer yes, penguins or no penguins? And all that, my, my team were like, what? Can you explain a bit? <laughs> we, we have a yeah, very drawings. We need the drawings of how the penguins yes. you know, fly and so on. <laughs> All right. We're calling on you, listeners. We have a very talented group of listeners out there, and I am challenging anybody out there. You can send to me at Planetary Radio at Planetary.org your rendering of penguin quen, penguinaceous life uh, in the clouds of Venus, and I will pass them on to Jane and her team. Deal? Oh, okay. Jane, it is always a delight. Thank you for joining us again and for this great work. I look forward to talking again, or whoever is in this seat, I know is going to want to talk to you again. 
Thank you so much. Cardiff University astronomer and professor Jane Greaves leads the team that is hunting for phosphine above Venus. There's much more of our conversation at planetary.org slash radio. And in this week's podcast, more of Bruce, too, who arrives in one minute. This is Planetary Radio. Hello, I'm George Takei. And as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hey, it's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. So here's the chief scientist once again, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, that is. Please help me welcome... Dr. Bruce Betts. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here again, Matt. Been a long time since we've talked. The secret word of the day is, can you guess? Penguin. Yes. <laughs> he wins the Chevy Nova. <laughs> Nova. <laughs> well, anyway, we'll, we'll, there are more penguin goodnesses ahead. But uh, first, tell us what's up in the night sky. Is there a penguin constellation? <laughs> Uh, in the penguin culture of Antarctica, there is, uh, <laughs> interestingly, the penguins of, uh, never mind. Focus, focus, focus. So focusing, there are no penguins in the sky because, you know, they can't fly. But there are planets spread all across the night. As long as it's not cloudy, you should be able to see a bright planet. In the evening, we've got Saturn just past opposition, so it's rising still right around sunset in the east, setting around sunrise in the west. Jupiter rising a couple hours later in the kind of early evening. Not surprisingly, due to the rotation of the Earth, this time they're coming up in the east. The Mars coming up around midnight, middle of the night, and looking reddish. And super bright Venus still hanging out low, but hanging out in the uh, pre-dawn east and so it's a it's a festival mars will be joined by the moon on the 19th that's the night of the 18th and going into the 19th you can also with or without the moon see the pleiades star cluster kind of near mars and the moon is in between them in the uh morning of the pre of the 19th blah 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 one more thing the moon is near venus low down in the pre-dawn east on the 25th. All right, let's go on to this week in space history. It was Voyager 2. Voyager 2 launched in 1977. Voyager 2, still going way out there. It's impressive. And we're going to celebrate the 45th anniversary of both launches in uh, just a couple of weeks here. So we'll go back out to JPL. We're going to talk to Andrewian as well. So on to random space fact. Dang it. I'm really off my game today. Oh, I like that. This is something highly technical that you may not have thought of, or maybe you have. 
an anagram for astronomers is moon starers. That's a very hard word for me to say, but someone who stares at the moon. Anagram. Wow. Also, kind of backwards, it's also an anagram for no more stars. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, well, the, after the heat death of the universe, I imagine. <laughs> oh, dude, you're bringing me down again. I'm sorry. Bring us back up again. Let's move on to the trivia contest. What solar system moon has the highest surface gravity? Something that I find not intuitive because it depends on a couple of parameters. How do we do, Matt? We got quite a few nice responses to this one. Here is the opening salvo from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild, in Kansas. Io is a spouting moon, volcanic, we can tell, a mass of vivid colors, a sulfuric burning hell. It's made of rock and silicate, so it's plain to see why Io ranks the highest with its surface gravity. Nice. <laughs> nice little ditty. Indeed, it is Io, moon of Jupiter, with a surface gravity of 0.183 g, so of the surface gravity on Earth. Thomas Ancillary who's been listening since at least 2016, and this is his first time as a winner there in Colorado. Congratulations, Thomas. You have won yourself a copy of that really beautiful book. It's, it's basically an art book. Carbon, One Adam's Odyssey by John Burnett. It's still for sale all over the place. We just happen to have another copy. It does trace the sort of lifespan of one carbon atom as it proceeds across the universe and through various uh, incarnations. It's, it's just a terrific book, all with these beautiful drawings uh, done by John. I think we're ready for another. This one's hard. I did a quick look at looking this up. Some of you might know this. You might be able to deduce it. You might be able to guess it. The internet is vast. But with the penguin theme, I could not resist. Hmm. What planetary society project, I'll give you a clue, it was a space flight, project. That doesn't mean a spacecraft. It just means it's a project to fly something in space. What TPS space flight project had a penguin as part of its logo? Go huh. to planetary.org slash radio contest. Wow. I've been around for 22 years almost, and uh, I don't know the answer to this one. So yeah, that's a good one. You got until Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time on August 20 fourth to get us the answer for this one. Here's the prize. It's another book that I discovered we have a spare copy of. We've given it away before, and I'm happy to award it again. The Spacefarer's Handbook, Science and Life Beyond Earth by Birgitta and Urs Gantz. And I hope I'm not mangling their names too badly, but that's what I do. It's really good. It's from Praxis, uh, Springer Praxis Books, and uh, it's a neat little handbook, uh, richly illustrated, and uh, that's what will go to the winner this time around. Sticking with this week's uh, penguin theme, I, I just want to bring up again that little, um, well, it's an, it amounts to a contest, I guess, an, an, an art invitational. I want to sweeten the pot a little bit on that offer to all of you to send us your artist concept of flying phosphine belching penguins in the Venusian atmosphere, which almost certainly are not there, uh, will award at least one planetary radio rubber asteroid to uh, someone who submits the art that they have created to go with this theme. More penguins, Bruce. Your scientific caution is truly impressive. 
Almost <laughs> certainly. <laughs> not not in the Venus atmosphere. All right. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky and think about would you rather see penguin poop from space or see penguins up close but have to smell it? Thank you. Know. Good night. Yeah, that's a tough one. I, I guess I would go for the former because I've been close to penguins without thick glass between us and they're dirty little birds. I'll tell you, I don't know if that was phosphine I was smelling or not, but it really smells <laughs> I've heard it's bad. That's Bruce Betts. He's keeping us honest because he's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. And he joins us every week here for What's Up? Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its penguin-loving members. But after all, who doesn't love penguins? It's not a requirement for membership in the Planetary Society, but it doesn't hurt. Mark Verda and Ray Poletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Add Penguin. I mean, I mean Astro. Astro.